0: Welcome to T- Torah Studies. This is a very special session, and I'll tell you why. Because you have chosen, out of all of the things that you could have done on an Erev Thanksgiving, you chose to join Torah Studies on this very special evening. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, what do you do Erev Thanksgiving? I mean, Turkey, I guess. I wanna share with you. This is just me, me sharing, because sharing is caring. I have such a taiva tonight, which is, means such a desire. I don't know where it came from. I'm like, I want to make potato latkes. And I'm thinking, where, why, what, since when? The night before Thanksgiving, making potato latkes. I don't know. I'm like, kids, let's make potato latkes. Whatever. It didn't happen yet. But but I'm at some point over the next 24 hours, I have a feeling that potato latkes are going to be made. Maybe it's because a few years ago, Hanukkah was on Thanksgiving. And maybe some sort of like thing was was formed in the brain? I don't know. But I also do know that there's never a bad time for potato latkes. So either way, it should be a good deal. All right. What else did I want to mention? Oh, tonight's class is dedicated to the loving memory of Jeff Moshe Krauss, whose yard site is today. And for those of you that knew Jeff, uh, Jeff was a very special young man, and he was in our community and, and in, our, in our home and with our family for, for a little while, um, for a few years or so. And um, Jeff passed away from the disease of addiction a few years ago on this day. And of course, you know, many of you know that Jeff's place is, uh, is named after Jeff. Tonight is his, Today is his yard site. And so we are dedicating tonight's class to the in loving memory of Jeff Moshe Krauss. So let's turn to the Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is Vayetze. And I wrote in the email, for those of you that got the email, I sent out an email uh, not that long ago, the email mentioned something along the lines of the purpose of life captured in six words. And that's really what we're going to talk about tonight. Sometimes you need an entire book, a novel, a book. Sometimes you need a movie to tell you the purpose of life. Sometimes all you need are six words. All you need are six words that tell you the meaning of life. And what are those six words? I'm sure you want to know. However, tonight, this is what we will be discussing. What are the six words that tell us the meaning of life? All right, I'm going to give you a clue. Here's the clue. You ready? It's the six words... With which our Torah portion begins. Vayetze Yaakov, mi be'er Sheva, vayelech harana. Vayeitse Yaakov, mi be'er Sheva, that's four, vayelech harana, which translates as, and Jacob left Be'er Sheva, and he went to Chara. Now in the English, you got a few more words. I counted in the translation that we have accounted 10 words, but I'm going with the Hebrew because the Hebrew is a little bit more concise, the meaning of life in six words. So tonight, we are going to unpack the meaning of this first opening verse of the Torah portion, Vayetzeh. We're going to unpack it on multiple dimensions, and I hope you will enjoy the ride. It's going to be phenomenal. Um, I'm going to begin by sharing my screen with you. Give me a moment while I pull up the the file to share. Um, Here we go. Okay, let's do this. Let's get ready to share the screen. All right, you guys are waiting so patiently. Thank you very much. Okay, here we go. Let's ask. Well, you know what? I I already read it, so I'm not going to ask someone to read it specifically. I'm going to make this a little bit larger, and I'm going to jump in. All right, text number one. I love this little caption over here. You see that little header above text one? It says, Jacob flies the coop. Yeah, that's what happened. Let me give you the background before we jump into the verse. And again, this opening verse, Vayetzi Yaakov, Mi Be'er Shavah, Vayelach One, two, three, four, five, six. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 in the Hebrew, that's the meaning of life on multiple dimensions. We're going to explore it in a moment. You know what? I'm going to stop sharing. Let me give you the background. So in last week's Torah portion, what happened? In last week's... Hey, you. Welcome. All right, in last... I guess you wanna join, don't you? All right, you can help me teach. In last week's Torah portion, Riva say hi to everybody. There you go, a little celebrity wave. We have our, who needs the Macy's parade with people waving? We got this right here. Reva, wave, there you go. This is the Reva float. Okay, you ready? Let's go. So What happens in last week's Torah portion? What happens is, famously, Jacob took the blessings. We spoke about this at length last week, or after the class. We we also had a conversation a schmooze about it. So Jacob takes the blessings from his brother, In the, the aftermath, his brother is a little bit upset, as you can imagine. Asav or Esau is a little bit mm, unhappy to the point that he tells himself, as soon as my as soon as father passes away, I am going to thank you. I am going to exact retribution. On my brother. That is what he, that's what he, that's his plan. Rebecca, his mother, somehow knows this plan and realizes the plan and the danger that Jacob is in. She tells her son Jacob, You have to leave town. You have to leave town. It's not safe for you to be here anymore. Your brother wants to kill you. Plus, she tells her husband, It's time for him to get Jacob to get married and he should really go find a wife back to, with my family. Back in a in, in in another country, so father and mother call Jacob over and they bid him farewell and they tell him to go on his journey to find a wife and again the the other rationale for it is and to escape the wrath of the twin brother Esau. Yes.
1: Um. Um. Last week, um, we did Esau, and um, it was um. 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 They had two girls, and and um. He he gave him the wrong signs.
0: Yeah. So. The wrong signs. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So. <laughs> Is that at the wedding or the or the blessings? The wedding. Okay, that's this week's portion. All right, but we're not there yet. So, this is the last week. So, last week, Reva's ahead of the game. She's, she's already with the signs and the wedding and Leah and Rachel. All right, hold on. He's still single. He's going to find he's going to find the wife soon. So, he gets, they send him out of town to escape the wrath of his brother and to find a shiruch, to find a wife. So, that's how the last Torah portion ends. So this Torah portion begins with... Here we go. I'm sharing the screen with you once again. I'm going to read text one. And Jacob left Be'er Sheva, which is his home, and went to Haran. And where's Haran? Haran is to the east. And Haran is where his mother's family came from. And that's where he was going to find a wife. This verse, and Jacob left Be'er Sheva, according to Kabbalah, And Hasidic philosophy, Chabad Hasidic philosophy, contains the secret of life and the purpose of life on a few dimensions. I'm going to start with one and I'm going to give it to you kind of, you know, briefly, and then we're going to develop a second understanding. So, what's the first understanding? It says in Kabbalah that every soul begins in a very special place on high. Every soul begins at the highest of heights above with the throne of God's glory. Even on a higher level, every soul ultimately is a piece of God and a part of God's essence. So the soul originates on a very lofty spiritual level. In Kabbalah it says that that is signified by the phrase Be'er Shava. Because what does that mean? It means the well of the oath. The well represents a depth where the source of life comes from, right? Water, which is life. I've seen that. Water is life. I've seen the signs. I'm yes.
1: Sorry,
0: my um, he lifted the rock off the well. He lifted the rock off the well. You know, how do you, look at you knowing the parsha and everything. All right. But again, we're not up to there yet. So, Be'er Sheva means the well. Of the oath. The well is the source. Every soul comes from the source. Sheva, the oath. What's the oath? So you may know this from the book of Tanya, if you've studied Tanya before. You know what? Unmute yourself if you know the answer. What does every soul do? What does every soul do before it comes down to earth? What happens? What happens? Who's got it? It
1: forbids. Well, that's, well, that's. It
0: forgets, yes, good. But what happens also before good? What, what else happens? It takes an oath. Every, yes, excellent. Every soul takes an oath. And, and the Talmud discusses the oath. What's the nature of the oath? The Talmud says every soul is told, be righteous. Yes, yes. Do not be wicked. Yes, yes. Or no, depending on how you want to answer that. I always struggle. Do you say yes to a no question, to a no thing, or a no to a no? Whatever, I'll let you figure that out. Right? So every soul is told, be righteous, don't be wicked, and if everyone tells you you're a tzaddik, you're righteous, you should look at yourself humbly as if you still have a lot of progress to, um, to, to uh, uh, you still, there's still more growth available. We should never let our righteousness or others' uh, compliments get to our head. And that's the oath that the soul is given before it comes down. So the phrase Be'er Sheva, represents the soul in its origin. Every soul begins in a pristine spiritual environment. And then, V'yei it goes down to a place called Charon. What is Charon? Charon af shel olam. It is the place of anger within the world. Haran was a wicked place back in the day and it represents the evils, the evils that exist in this world. Every soul is sent from a place where there's no evil into an environment where, unfortunately, or depending on how you look at it, there's opportunity to, uh, to withstand the temptation, but for better or for worse, a world that is Haran, a world that represents evil. That's the journey of the soul. And what's the point? The point is to make a difference, and that's what we're gonna explore tonight. But again, the journey of life, the journey of life is captured, as the Torah tells us about Jacob's epic journey from Be'er Sheva, from home, representing spiritual home, into a foreign, and not just foreign, but a hostile, and so often a very dark environment. So. When, when we read this story from a mystical perspective, it's not just about a biblical character named Jacob who, you know, 34, 3,500 years ago made this journey because he had to get out of Dodge because his brother wasn't happy that he took his blessings. This is our journey. It's my journey. It's your journey. This is our journey. And therefore, we have to study this Torah portion through fresh eyes, through the lens of personal instruction. The Torah is a guidebook and a manual for life. People often say, I wish life came with an instruction manual. Spoiler alert, it does. It's called the Torah. We have the manual. We just have to open it up and read it. But the most important thing is the premise that this is my manual. This is is your manual. This is not just Jacob's story. It's our story. It's the story of the soul that comes down from above for a very special purpose. So what we're going to do tonight, after this brief intro, this general insight into the journey of Jacob, which is the journey of all of us, we're now going to do a deep dive into the details of this journey and a specific call to action that these six words contain. So let's jump in. The question that I'm going to ask now is, why was, on a practical level, I gave you the spiritual understanding a moment ago, but on a very practical level, why was the place called Be'er Sheva? Why, was it, why did it have that name? Well, the Torah tells us in two places. Prior to this, uh, to this verse, the Torah tells us how that city got the name Beersheva, And it has to do with, you guessed it, wells and oaths. So what happened? All right. Here's here's the uh, the, the, the quick story.
1: Um, and and um, um and he found his um the, um like he um the trickster.
0: The trickster. Yeah. The Yeah. Yeah. The trickster Lavan. Yeah. You always have to be careful with the tricksters. Okay. So how did the name Beersheva get? How did the city Beersheva get its name? This is what we're going to explore. It has to do with wells, and it's a story with both Abraham and Isaac. So, again, this is Jacob leaving Be'er Sheva. We're talking about how that city got its name. Let me share my screen with you. We're going to jump inside. By the way, everybody is muted. We just do that for a clean background at any time. Jump in if you have any questions or insights, etc. We're going to start with text number two. Uh, Mike, if I can ask you to read, please read text number two. um, And Abraham.
2: And Abraham contended with Abimelech about the well of water that the servants of Abimelech had forcibly seized. Abimelech said, I do not know who did this thing, neither did you tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Abraham took flocks and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and they formed a covenant. Therefore, he named the place Be'er Sheva, for there they both swore. And they formed a covenant in Be'er Sheva, and Abimelech and Fakol, his general, arose, and they returned to the land of the Philistines.
0: Thank you. So let, let me explain this reading, and thank you, Mike, for reading. So this is back in the days of, of Avram of Abraham, and he's living in the land that is populated by a people called the Philistines or Pelishtim. And their king is a fellow named Abimelech. And Abimelech was, or his servants at least, were stealing the wells that Abraham's servants had dug. And so Abimelech comes to Abraham and they begin schmoozing and Abraham says, you know, I have a little bit of beef with you guys. What's the beef? The beef is because, look, we're digging wells. We need the water. And your guys are coming and taking the wells. I mean, you can't, like, take a well and run. But they're somehow taking control over the wells. I mean, that would be, yeah, well. So, look, you're taking the wells. You're claiming them as yours. This, 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 can't, this can't go on like this. It's not, it's it's, it's nishkasher. It's not okay. So what happens? Avimelech says, and this is, by the way, his famous line. Throughout Torah, he always, I had no idea. He's the guy. He's, in, he's, in, he, he's at the head. He's the boss but he has no clue. Now, does he really not have a clue, or does he just use that as an excuse? I'll let you decide. But when it comes to Yitzchak and Rivka, I had no idea she was your wife. When it comes to the wells, I had no idea. Every time something happens, and he's a, a bit a bit guilty in the situation, he always says the same thing, I didn't know. By the way, on Yom Kippur, this is a tangent, but it's very important. On Yom Kippur, one of the things that we, one of the al that we, uh, we tap our chest about and, and, and ask for forgiveness about is um, um, we, we, we confess and we ask forgiveness for the sins that we did. With knowingly and unknowingly. The question is, if we do a sin unknowingly, so why do we have to ask forgiveness? We didn't know. The answer is because not knowing is also a sin, right? Who, what gives you the right to not know? You have to know. What do you mean? Not knowing means you didn't do what you needed to do to know. Again, that's uh, a bit of an insight into Yom Kippur, but the way it pertains to this conversation is Abimelech is always claiming ignorance. I didn't know. I didn't know, so you can't hold me responsible. So he says regarding the well, he says, uh, with Abraham, the wells, he says, I had no idea they were taking the wells. I'm so sorry. So what happens? They make a covenant. They make an agreement. They say, look, Avram's going to play nice with, uh, with Avimelech's folks, and Avimelech's folks are going to play nice with Avram, with Abraham's folks. They make a Brit, they make a covenant, not a Brit Mila, not a circle. They make a covenant, and that's it. They make a peace treaty. And they called that place where they made the peace treaty Be'er Sheva, the well of the oath where they promised to be nice to each other. So there was a well and there was a promise. We call that Be'er Sheva. Guess what happened? Next generation. Now it's no longer Abraham. Abraham is is past. Now it's Isaac. What happens? You guessed it. Abimelech's people, the Pelishtim, the Philistines, are still causing problems. Now... They take dirt and they put the dirt inside the wells that Abraham's servants had dug. Now they're filling the wells. They're clogging up the wells. That's not cool. So Isaac now, this is the next generation. Isaac now has a conversation, you know, has a serious conversation with the aforementioned Abimelech. And he says, what are you doing? You're, you're, you, you, you closed up all my, all, my, all my wells. Let's take a look at text number three. Hmm. By the way, in case you're wondering why we're we talking about wells, it's going to be abundantly clear in a moment. Okay, here we go. Sharing the screen once again. Let's go, to, oops, went too far. Let's go to text three. And now we're with the times of Isaac. Uh, Sarah, do you want to read? Okay.
2: And Isaac, again, does the well of water which they had dug in the days of his father Abraham, and the Philistines had stopped them up after Abraham's death. And he gave them names like the names that his father had given them. And Isaac's servants dug in the valley, and they found there a well of living waters. And the shepherds of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's shepherds, saying, the water's ours. So he named the well Essek because they had contended with him And he went up from there to Beir Sheva. And Abimelech went to him from Gerar and a group of his companions and Tichol, his general. And they said, we have seen that God was with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between ourselves and you, and let us form a covenant with you.
0: Continue on the next page, just at the top.
2: He said Sheva. Therefore, the city is named Be'er Sheva until this very
0: day. So, so interesting. It's already called Be'er Sheva because in the previous generation it was called Be'er Sheva. And yet, there was another agreement, another covenant, right? As you saw on the previous page, as Sarah read, they made a covenant. Let there now be an oath between us, between ourselves and you. Let us form a covenant. And they called that place. Once again, they reaffirmed the name of Be'er Sheva, the well and the oath. There was a covenant. Alright. So do
3: we know what was in this covenant?
0: Yeah, the covenant essentially was... Good question. The covenant essentially was, I'm going to treat you guys nice and you treat us nice. It was basically that we're not going to start up with each other. But understand what prompted it both times is that they were starting up with Abraham and Isaac. So they were starting up with Abraham and his, his, his folks, so they made this covenant. Then they started up again with the wells and with Isaac and Isaac's wells. And so, again, there was a covenant formed, and, and that was, um, and, 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 and in both cases, it's interesting, the city, the same city got the name Be'er Sheva mm-hmm. twice, because the, the, pretty much the same history repeated itself, and the, uh, the covenant was done. All right, now, we have the most incredible...
2: Really?
0: Yeah, go ahead. Uh,
2: doesn't Sheva mean seven?
0: It also means seven, yes. What
2: does
0: seven have to do with seven So, no, it's, 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 it's she, she, uh, Shavua could mean seven. It could also mean oath. Now, what's the connection between seven and oaths? We'll have to let the etymologists uh, loose on that. But here's the deal. It mean, it, the, the root, Shin, Bet, and Ayin, could either mean a root of seven or root of an oath. And in this context, it's clear the Torah is clear why it's called Be'er Sheva. Not because of seven wells, but rather because... Kisham nishbu'u shnei Because there, both parties took an oath. They pledged that they would be nice to each other. They would, they would respect each other. And that oath um, is, what, is, is, what, is what caused it. But you are correct. If you're asking, does Sheva or Shavua also mean seven? The answer is yes. Is it related specifically to this story? Not necessarily. It, it,
2: there
0: there might have also been uh, um, a seven in the covenant and in the animals. There might have also been, okay, okay. but the main thing is about the oath. Either way, though, the bottom line is that this represents the space, the place where the covenant happened, which leads the Medrash to say the most remarkable. In- oh, yeah. Joy, go ahead. So
3: I'm sorry. No, so. I take it then the oath ended upon the passing of the person with whom the oath was
0: made? It's interesting, right? You would think, because when you look at the original, Abraham, um, Abimelech says, we'll be nice to each other and our children also, but already once Abraham passes away, he renegs on that promise okay. and he's okay. already stopped. Yeah. So the answer is, theoretically, it was supposed to be multi-generational. In practice, there was a need to renew the covenant already by the next generation. So we see that it didn't really last beyond that, that first generation, which leads the Midrash to say the most incredible insight as Riva looks on with her glasses. This leads, this leads um, the Midrash to, uh, to, to comment something phenomenal. I'm gonna share my screen once again. This is text four. Um, let's do Susan. Go ahead if you don't mind. Please unmute and read text number four. Take it away.
1: Rabbi Yudi said, the verse is to be read. And Jacob fled from the wells of oath. Namely, Jacob said to himself, I don't want Abimelech, king of the Philistines, to approach me and say, swear to me as your father and grandfather did.
0: I I need to explain what the medrash is saying. The Medrash is saying that why did Jacob leave? Now you and I know the answer. Because he had to get away from Esau, his brother, who wanted to kill him. And he had to find a wife. Comes along the Medrash, Rabbi Yudin comes along and says, No, 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 I got a third reason. You know why he left Pe'er Because he didn't want to make another covenant with Abimelech. You with me? This is what Rabbi again, Rabbi Yudin said, what does it mean he left Be'er Sheva. He left the place of the well of the oath. Which means that Jacob said to himself, I don't want Abimelech once again for the third time to say, let's take another oath, let's make another covenant. He's like, I'm done with your covenants. Done, not happening, I'm out of here. Mm. And so now everyone wants to ask the question, what is the measure saying? What in the world is going on. How does this make any sense? What was so bad with the covenant? What was so wrong with making a covenant? Why is he running away from making a covenant? What's, what's so terrible, right? What's so terrible about making a, about signing a peace treaty? It sounds like a good thing. Again, I, I, I just want to be very clear here because it's very important to understand how unique and novel this measure is. I would venture to say that most of us that have studied the story, studied the Torah stories, have never heard of this magic before, and have, and have never heard of this notion that, that, um, that Yaakov left, specifically because he didn't want to make another covenant with, uh, with Abimelech. What a thing. We know, based on the Torah stories, that why does Yaakov leave? He leaves to get away from his brother, and he leaves to find a wife. And now we have a third reason. He left... Because he didn't want to get ensnared in, in covenants with and The question is, what's so bad? What's wrong with a covenant? A covenant is a good thing. Peace is a good thing. Shalom is good. Shalom in the east, shalom in the west, shalom in the north, shalom in the south. Shalom is good. Peace is good. So what's the problem? Why is he bouncing? Understand the question. Before the question, understand the midrash. Yeah? Yes? The midrash makes sense? Yeah? Understand the question on the medrash? what's, what, what's the, why is he running away? Good. All right. This is a medrash that the Rebbe quoted once years ago in a Febrengan. And I want to share with you the insight. It's unbelievable. The Rebbe explains, and this is a, 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 a concept that is found in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, Chabad Hasidic philosophy, the concept, is, I'm gonna give you two names. Two names. Two two terms. One is called iskafia, and one is ishapha. And I'm pronouncing it like a good Ashkenazi. Right? These are Ashkenazic pronunciations. In the in the in the in the Sfardi or or Havara would probably be something like um it kafia and it hapcha. What does it mean? Really, these are also Aramaic terms, Aramaic Hebrew terms. The first, but I'm just going to say it as as uh, as I'm a little bit more comfortable with it. Is is and is hapcha? What is is kafya? Is means both terms relate uh, or, or, or relate to how we relate to negativity. How do we relate to a negative desire? Or negative drive inside, or a challenge, a character challenge. I was about to say flaw, but a character challenge that we might have inside. How do we respond to it? How do we deal with the negativity within ourselves? One way is escafia, which means we try to, we try our best to suppress the negative. You know, we might call it white knuckling, where we just hold on. We get angry, right? Let's say we get, we get angry. So someone pushes our buttons. So we tell ourselves, I feel the anger. I'm getting angry. I'm going to like grab onto something and squeeze so I don't explode in anger. I'll walk out of the room and count to 10 and then walk back in so I don't explode with anger. This is, a, 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 this is an approach in which we feel the challenge And the way we address it is essentially trying to push it away or throw it, you know, sweep it under the carpet or put it in the closet or whatever it is. Like, put it away so that it doesn't interfere in the moment. We try to suppress it. We try to subdue it. We try to put it away. Skafia also could mean we try to break it, but it's not really broken for good. It's broken in the moment. In the moment it's pushed away, but it's not really a long term solution. So, this approach says, I'm not fixing it, but I'm just pushing it away until another point in time. So, the advantage of this is look, we've dealt with on some level, let's, I'm just sticking with the example, we've dealt with our anger because we were angry. And we might have said something that we would later regret, but we didn't. We were able to push it away and get through that moment and not say the mean or hate or, or negative or spiteful thing. We didn't say the thing that we would regret later. And so we call that a success. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is, as I mentioned a moment ago, is we haven't really dealt with the issue. You with me on this? We're not dealing with the issue, we're just pushing it away. It's kind of like Whack-A-Mole. You know that game, Whack-A-Mole? It has all the... the, It's
2: disengagement, Ari.
0: It's disengagement also, right? Yeah, so it's disengagement. It's it's trying to, but it's not, I don't know if it's 100% disengagement. You're engaging, right? Actually, no, it is disengagement. We're trying to avoid it, trying to push it away, trying to suppress it. It could either be a little bit more directly, more indirectly. Either way, one thing is for sure not happening, and that is, in this model, one thing that's definitely not happening is transformation. We're not actually refining or transforming or healing. It's just suppressing. And again, the advantages you got through the moment, the disadvantages is there will be another moment. Give you an example. And this is a modern example. I'm not getting into the politics of war. That is not my intention. I'm just using war, recent wars, as an example. So terrorist, war on terrorism. Okay? So there's a terrorist group. There's a a big terrorist network, whether it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS, whatever example it is. And we decide... Whoever we, we are, right? Whoever the we is, we decide that we need to fight terrorism and we go in and somehow we fight terrorism and we declare victory. Okay? So I'll ask you a question. Is it really victory? Or is it pushing aside and pushing to corners and at some later point, right, it could spring back up? In other words, the question, if, how effective was it the proof is in the pudding. If at a later point, the same issue is still there, it just means that in the moment when it wasn't there, you just covered it up, or you just put it, pushed it away, or you just jumped over it for a moment, or you just ignored it, but it really, you really didn't deal with it, you just, you know, pushed it aside for a little bit. It's
2: called putting a Band-Aid on a problem. It's
0: putting, yes, it's putting a Band-Aid on the problem. So, what's, so here's, here's what it means. You're, you're feeling... When we talk on a, on a, on a Hasidic level, from a, from a spiritual perspective. When I say Hasidic level, from the perspective of Hasidic philosophy. We can, use, we can speak about this in terms of our drive, general drive, toward materialism. Right? I mean, I spoke before about dealing with anger and specific issues. But in general terms, it would be our struggle toward being pulled into materialism as opposed to higher pursuits. God didn't put us here to indulge in sushi and steak. No, God put us here to do something a little bit more meaningful. But what's the problem? We have a body, we have an animal soul, and these parts of our being pull us down, are trying to pull us down into materialistic, hedonistic behaviors. That's the reality of, of the challenge that we have. We have a soul, a godly soul that pulls upward, that, that, that tries to encourage us to do something more noble. And then we have a lower self, an animal soul, and a body that tries to pull us down. So, the Altar Rebbe des- describes this in Tanya. He says, life is a constant battle for the Bainani, for you and I, constant battle between these two forces, the force pushing us, pulling us up, and the force pulling us down. So what happens? Uh Solution. You ready? Here's a solution to that drive that pulls us down. To the part of us that's worried about the physical stuff, worried about the financial stuff, worried about the next meal, or, or, or obsessed with, with all, the, all the materialism. You know what the solution is? Listen to this. Solution is tefillah. That means prayer. If you pray, and you say Shema, and you proclaim the oneness of God, and you're really, in that moment, thinking of God, at that moment, you are... Clean of your animal soul. No more animal soul bugging you and harassing you and, 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 and you know, pulling on your sleeve and say, hey, come here, let's do this. When you're davening, when you're praying, if you're doing it right, that's a moment of clarity. Let me share my screen with you so that you can see this inside the text itself. Once again, we, uh, we always like learning from the inside so that we can see the text, Dr. Maxi, would you please read text number five, chapter 12 of Tanya?
3: Reciting Shema or other parts of prayer is a spiritually opportune time for all. It is then that one can fixate their mind on the greatness of God and rouse their heart with fiery flames of love, motivating themselves to cleave to God by fulfilling His mitzvot and studying Torah out of love. At that point, the evil vested in the left chamber of their heart is suppressed by the goodness that is spread from the right chamber of their heart, which is influenced by the mind, which is in turn bound up with the greatness of God.
0: Thank you. So what the author is saying is that when we're praying and reciting, for example, the Shema, so a person, again hopefully ideally is filled with a love a fiery love for God to the point that all of the negative temptations that's the imagery is that it's contained in the left chamber of the heart not physically but conceptually right there's the right side which is the good and the left side which is the not so good so the love for God that's being expressed and felt in prayer has the ability to suppress all of the negativity on the left side of the heart, all of the evil, all of the negativity, all of the, all of the materialistic, materialistic uh, um, yearnings. This is pushing it away. And it's wonderful. But you know what the Altar Rebbe says in the next minute? Text number six. Donna, please read this one. Um, hold on, uh, Donna from, Do- Jewelry Donna, please read, please read, text, no- we have to have other, other descriptions, I'm, just, I'm all, right. St- all right, text number six, take a look at how the Alter Rebbe ex- describes the, the flip side of this, however.
2: After prayer, the evil impulses can easily come back, mixing with goodness to challenge a person as they walk through the darkness of this world.
0: What the Alter Rebbe is saying is as as real as the inspiration and the love and the spiritual, you know, explosion was during prayer, after prayer, guess what happens? After prayer, when you get back into the real world and back to your job and back to your your day-to-day grind, guess what? The evil impulse can easily come back and you know why? Because when you prayed, you never really got rid of it. You never really transformed it. All you did was overwhelm it with a meditation or two, with some prayers. I don't want to minimize the effect of prayer, but the long-lasting effect is not necessary. The evil impulse comes back because it never was truly healed. Are you with me on this? This is all the first approach. I told you before there's two approaches. Approach number one is, you got a problem, push it away. The problem with that is, it'll come back. So during davening, when you're praying, you push it away, because there's an abundance of spiritual energy, so you push the negative away. But after prayer, when you've come back down to earth, it comes back too. So what's the second form? This is called eshapcha, which is not eskafia. It's not, uh, it's not um, suppressing, it's not you know, pushing it away. This is ithapcha, which means transformation. This is taking, focusing on the negative, working with it to transform your enemy, inner enemy or outer, into an ally. Think about this. I use the example of the war on terrorism. Think about this. There was a major effort, in my understanding, there was a major effort during the Cold War to not just fight or whatever conventionally, but also to try to gain the minds and the hearts of the Russians, of the, of the, of the Soviet people. There was a concerted effort by the CIA and others. Again, I have my sources to spread information across the Soviet Union, to allow people to come in contact with the blessings of democracy, so that from inside, from inside there's gonna be a transformation, so that from the inside, there's gonna be an alliance with Western values. Are you with me on this? This is, now, did it work? Did it not work? I'm not, again, it's not about the politics and I'm not weighing in on, 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 on you know, effectiveness. My point is simply, this, is, this represents, at least in concept and theory, another type of strategy. One strategy is we're going to get rid of the enemy by driving them away. All right, guess what? You're not getting rid of them that way. They're going to come back. The other way is to try to convert transform, flip the enemy into a friend. You with me on this? So if you can explain to the enemy your position and what you stand for, and you can understand each other, you know what? Maybe you'll realize you're not actually enemies and maybe you'll work together. And then you know what? If it's genuine, if that experience is is genuinely effective, you don't have to worry that come the next day, come the next week, that they're going to stab you in the back. You know why? Or they're going to come back you know, and, and antagonize again. Because you're on the same page. As much as this is true externally where we don't have that control, this is even more so internally when we deal with our own stuff. There are two forms of dealing with our own inner challenges, our own inner personality challenges challenges, and, and, and midot, the, the, our character traits that need tikkun that need fixing, that need repair. One is we override them. We get angry, we take deep breaths, and we make sure we don't do anything that we would regret, and we move on. But you know what? The anger There's going to be another situation that brings the anger again, unless we go to the source, unless we go to the core and try to heal it from the inside out. That's the so, only uh, way. Yes, go ahead. So,
2: so I, I have a question going back to
3: the um, what we are the, what we are studying about the wells and saying, forget it. I don't want to deal with this guy anymore. So it sounds that he did not do that. He just said.
0: So hold on. I I, 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 you're trying to connect it back with the story. I'm gonna, we're gonna connect it in a moment. I first want to want to develop this a little bit, and then we're gonna. Trust me, we're gonna, we're going right back to the story and why Jacob says, "I'm not doing this again." But we're gonna get there in a, in, a, in a moment. I want to show you some texts that bring out, that express the second approach, which I think you'll find really, really beautiful. This is text number eight. Let me share my screen with you once again. And let's do this. Here we go. From Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. Um, Steve, would you like to read? Please unmute yourself. Steve, please read text number eight.
2: Who is mighty? He who conquers his evil inclination, as it is said. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than
0: he who takes a city. So in Pirkei it tells us something amazing. What defines strength or how is strength defined? It's not by how many external foes you can conquer, but how well you conquer your own stuff inside. That is the definition of might and power and strength. Ezehugibar hakovesh et Yitzroh. Who is mighty? The one who conquers his or her own evil inclination comes along the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, and gives an incredible insight. This is from Keter Shem Tov. Beautiful, mystical, Hasidic, deep insight into this Mishnah. All right, let's ask, let's ask um, Donna to please read the Baal Shem Tov's insight on that Mishnah that we just read. The Baal
2: Shem Tov commented on the Mishnah. It doesn't say break is inclination, rather it says conquer. To break the evil inclination is not a display of real strength. All it takes to break the evil inclination is common sense, which dictates that personal evil tendencies ought to be broken. The idea of conquering is to utilize one's energies and character traits, for there is much more great the power of the ox. Namely, the animal within is a powerful engine, even greater than the godly soul. Such a person behaves with strength. This then is the Mishnah's dictum Who is mighty? one who appropriates the force of his evil inclination and uses it for holiness.
0: Thank you. Look at that Look at that insight, it's unbelievable. The Baal Shem Tov said, it's no big deal. Now it is, trust me, it is a big deal. But he says, it's no big deal to break your evil inclination. To say, you want it, you're not getting it. You wanna do this, you wanna do that, not happening on my watch. To go at it like that, relatively speaking, is easier then the second paragraph to conquer it means that you've brought it on your side on the side of holiness you're now using the power of the animal the inner animal the inner nefesh habamith the inner animal soul toward us toward a, to, and you're utilizing it toward us toward, uh, uh, for a spiritual and holy purpose that is much much loftier and much more effective and much more incredible
3: no, Chico.
0: So, what is going on here? What is happening is the Rabbi says it's not about breaking, which breaking doesn't mean destroying. It means overriding. It's about leveraging your. It's about appropriating the evil for the for to to and, and to become a force for good. It's about flipping the negative into a positive. I'll give you an example in education. You ready? Classic education example. You're teaching a class, and let's say it's a class of fifth graders, and there's one kid that is a troublemaker and he's acting out and he's, or she, is, is causing trouble, and when they cause trouble, everyone starts causing trouble. And you don't know what to do. Because everyone else, when this kid is out of the class, everyone's learning. When the kid's in the class, no one's learning. No one's learning. And you don't know what to do. So you think, what's the solution? Take the kid and put them out of the class. You solved the problem, right? You didn't solve the problem. You just pushed away the problem. You didn't solve the problem. That's the whole point of tonight's class. You're not solving the problem if you're not solving the problem. Pushing away the problem doesn't constitute solving the problem. So what's the solution? You have to speak to the child and find a way to leverage their abilities. So when they act out, everyone acts out, great. You just identified someone that has natural charisma and leadership abilities. So you take the child and you say to this child, you're a leader in this class. I want you to be my whatever it is. You're the leader. You're gonna be the one that is given the responsibility to be a leader for good in this class. I I have to take the opportunity to say thank you to Maura Sara Carter for sharing this insight with me a few years ago in basically in, in, in very similar terms the notion of when somebody is acting out don't fight it don't push it leverage it figure out how to use that energy for a positive that's the second method. That's called it hapcha. That's called, or is That's called transforming, flipping it for good. That takes much more effort, much more effort, more patience, more deliberate effort, more mindful effort. But you know what? It pays off long term because now you no longer have an enemy that still lurks. You have another ally. You have an asset, not a liability. Does this make sense? Now we get back to the story. Now we get back to the story. Before we get back to the story, there's an insight that, that's in this class that I want to quickly mention. The al writes in Torah R, which is a collection of Hasidic discourses on the Torah portions. The al the founder of Chabad, Writes this notion that p- different people have different personalities. Some people are more introverted, some people are, are extroverted. That's just one way of slicing personalities, but he says in general introverted, extroverted. So, somebody who's a more introverted personality, sometimes it could lead to more sadness and, and it just it could lead to you know, some, some what we would call like negative character traits, but it's also conducive, a more introverted character toward academia and study. Right. I mean, again, there's no hard and fast rules, but somebody who's a little bit more introverted might find themselves, you know, a bit more studious than, than, than not. So I want to share with you this letter. Uh, that's, this is going to help this letter. Understand this letter that the Rebbe writes to somebody. Text 11. The Rebbe was writing this. Oh, Well, you'll see. Text 11. I'm going to read it. You write, this is the Rebbe writing back to the person. We don't know, we don't have, it's not published what they wrote, but we have what the Rebbe wrote back. You wrote that you're besieged with melancholy thoughts. Um, in the Hebrew, it's called Marashkora. Yeah. Mel- mel- melancholy mel- mel- thoughts. Though I find this somewhat surprising if it is happening, well, you know what is stated in Torah are. Melancholy can also drive rigorous study, especially, especially Torah study. In other words, if you find yourself more introverted and having more serious thoughts, so instead of them turning into sad thoughts, harness your introverted personality. Your more analytical personality instead of, you know, working against yourself, channeling into Torah study. Again, this is but one example, one example of taking a trait that otherwise we might construe as negative, we might think of as negative, and utilize it for the positive. And now we can get back to our story with Jacob. I told you, I mean, at this point you should have the answer already. Right? Abraham and Abimelech. Avimelech is a thorn in Abraham's side, in Avram's side. His, he claims he doesn't know. Sure, he's the king. Of course he knows. Of course he's, he's the boss. He's in control. And they're, they're causing problems again and again and again. So they make a peace treaty. All right, we're not going um, to mess with you. You don't mess with us. Fine. And then Abraham passes away. What happens next? What happens next? What happened in the next generation? We talked about it before. Is Abimelech cured of his, yeah. of his antagonism or not?
2: Yeah, again. It doesn't.
0: He comes back again. What does that represent? That represents you made a deal. You made a bargain. You said it's yeah, You pushed it away. You pushed it away. All right. We're not going to. You don't start up with me. I won't start up with you. But do you, did you address the problem? Did you flip the evil to positive? Did you flip it toward good? Did you transform the enemy into an ally? Yes, it's called a treaty. It's called a covenant. But it wasn't a transformation. How do I know it wasn't a transformation? Because he stuffed up the wells again. That's not transformation. That means you didn't transform it. And so there's another treaty with with Isaac. And you know what? It still wasn't better. And so this is how the Rebbe explains the story. So Jacob says, I'm leaving Be'er Sheva. I'm leaving this pattern of making deals and nothing changing. Because to make a deal that pushes away the problem temporarily is nishkain deal, as they say in Yiddish. It's not a deal at all. It's just a distraction. Nothing's happening. Nothing's transforming. He realized that Abimelech wasn't ready yet to change. Because when it comes to somebody else, you can't change them unless they're willing to change, right? He wasn't ready to change, so there's no one to talk to. So he said to himself, I'm not going to make the same mistake again to think that I'm making progress by just pushing the problem aside until it comes back again. There's no point. So he leaves Be'er Sheva. He leaves the modality of making deals, of suppression, suppressing the negative, but not really addressing it. He leaves that pattern and goes to Haran. And in Haran, he embarks on a journey to transform the world around him. How does that actually play out on the ground? How does that literally play out with Lavan, with Laban, with his uncle father in law How does it play out later with Esau, with Esau, when, re- re- um, when he reconnects with him? That, you have to stay tuned for all the stories as they unfold in the next Torah portion or two. But the point is... This is the way the Rebbe explains it, and I'm going to share with you the text where we see this insight in black and white and, and um, well, I'll put up on the screen. The, the, the idea here is that Jacob says the first method is not sufficient. It may have been the best that could have been done in Abraham's times or in Isaac's times, but now we're ready for the second path. We're ready for transformation. And now with Abimelech, he's not ready, but we're going to go to Haran and there make a difference. I told you before that this also represents the grand journey of the soul from heaven down to earth, right? This journey of Jacob from, from his father's house to Haran represents the journey of the soul from its father's house or her father's house. The soul is you've spoken of as feminine terms into this world. Well, what's the purpose of this world? Not to delay negative, and not to not to survive the negativity, but to transform the negativity into positive. It's to leave the deals and to make. To change. Let me show this to you inside, and we will then wrap up the class. Here we go. Um, let's take a look at text 12. I'm going to read these texts now. Text 12. The the rabbit uh, um, uh, contrasts Abraham and Isaac's uh, avodah uh, spiritual service with Jacob's. They made the deal with Abimelech, and he didn't. Abraham and Isaac's service was such that the forces of evil were repelled, so they shouldn't be an obstruction, but they were not transformed to holiness. In other words, for the moment, temporarily, they were out of the way. Temporarily, we have a deal. We have a covenant. We have a bargain. We made a deal. You don't bother me. I don't bother you. But you, didn't, you never transform Abimelech into a friend. He's just, for the moment, not going to bother you. Um, let's continue with text 14. However, Jacob's approach That was the way, inside, that was the way that Abraham and Isaac served God. By contrast, Jacob's way was to completely transform evil. As such, he couldn't make a peace agreement with Abimelech as he was in his current evil state. Abimelech was not willing to change. He said, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm not making a covenant. I'm not making a deal because any deal is not going to be effective. It's just pushing off the inevitable or the inevitable return of the same evil, the same problem that was before. No more games, no more running around. We're dealing with it head on. And so he goes to Haran. Take a look at at how the Rebbe concludes this talk. Beautiful insight. The Rebbe says the future redemption, Mashiach, will come specifically through transformative Jacob-like efforts. In other words, to really transform the negative into positive, darkness into light. As we work throughout this exile to transform the negativity of the world around us, we become worthy of the third temple with the coming of the Mashiach. Our sages say that the temple will not be associated with Abraham, who's connected with the mountain, nor Isaac, who's connected with the field, rather with Jacob, who's associated with the house, a permanent structure. May we merit that time of world peace speedily. If we want a peaceful world, you know what it means. It means not kicking aside the negative forces, which are not going away, but it's transforming the darkness to light, the evil into positive, the, the evil into good and the negative into the positive. That is the way that change happens. In other words, change happens when change happens. But without change, I like saying this, I heard this from uh, one of my mentors, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. If you, say, if you think what you thought and you say what you said and you do what you did, you know what you'll have? What you had. If you want something new, you got to change. You got to have change without change. You're just going to have what you had before. Abimelech never changed. And that's why he made one covenant, made another covenant. You, you, we, we, it's easy to speak about Jacob and Abimelech. Trust me, it's so easy. You wanna, if we get real, let's speak about ourselves. How many times have we made deals with ourselves? That's it. From now on, I'm never going to such and such. Yeah? And then the wells get stuffed up again, metaphorically. Same stuff, same drama, same negative, just different, you know, the next time. So what happened? Easy. We never changed. We just told ourselves we're not going to do it again. Does that work? We made a deal. We made a covenant. You know what? From now on, no. Yeah? How effective? Listen, I'm not knocking it all together. That's step one. Right? We have a progression, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. But we have to know that without addressing it, it's not really changing. And, and what does it mean to address it? Again, this is not a class. This is not a format where we could do a deep dive into how do we deal with anger, how do we deal with sadness, how do we deal with temptations, et cetera. This, we don't have the time to do a deep dive and a workshop to work through it and to give you know, actual you know, role play and that sort of thing. That's not for this context, and that's not the format of this class. But we have the concepts. Now you and I need to apply it on our own. But making the deal and making the bargain only goes so far. But typically, typically, hold on, I'm I'm muting you guys just because I'm not, I I know I'm going to get to your question in a second, but just because it's a little bit noisy. So here's the deal. We make the deals, we make the bargains, we make the covenants with ourselves. Safer to talk about Avimelech, but we do it with ourselves. And you know what? It comes back again. It comes back and it doesn't go away. Why? Because we didn't address it. The key is to hone in on what is the problem, what is the core, how do we use that negative desire, temptation, you know, character trait, how do we realize its positive potential? To label it as negative, wholly negative, we're never going to get rid of it. But if we understand how to leverage it for good, rav tevuot bekoachshar, the abundance of wheat, you want to plow your field, you need an ox to plow your field, right? So you leverage the animal within to create something positive. That's when the transformation happens. That's what we're doing, and that's our avodah collectively to make the world into a better place, into a place that is worthy of being God's home. And that's what Mashiach is. Mashiach is not a world in which we've pushed away all the evil to the corners, so now there's space. That's not Mashiach. Mashiach is transforming the evil into positive. All right, so that's it for tonight. Um, I'm going to officially close out because I know, I know we're past the time. And then we'll open it up for questions. Richard and Susan, you guys have the first question. But I want to formally thank all of you for being here tonight and for joining me for Torah Studies. I hope this resonated with you. I hope you found it meaningful. And, um, and I hope we'll all apply it in our own way to make to truly make ourselves you know, that much more of a mensch and make the world more, more bright for all of us. As we get ready for Thanksgiving, let's be thankful and grateful for all of the opportunities that we have, all of the, the, the blessings that God gives us, and even the blessings of the challenges, the challenges that we have, the inner challenges, we should, we should recognize that they too are a blessing to be discovered when we do that transformation. Thank you again for joining me. And uh, this concludes the class formally. But we'll stay on for questions. All right, Richard and Susan, jump on in. So
2: I, so I understand the scene is wonderful. It's transformation. I you apply that in my own life because I always make oaths and don't follow through And I understand that completely. What I don't understand is the plot. I don't understand Jacob and Abimelech. He actually did just brush them aside by leaving. And yet I don't understand what that has to do with his transforming. Later on, it's like maybe this is the next part, so we'll the next a couple parts. I don't, under, I don't understand this transformation by just leaving the situation and going somewhere else. I don't understand that transformation I, at
0: all. Excellent, excellent. So what we're studying tonight is kind of a metaphorical understanding of the story that's not going to be able to be plugged in literally to every line in the plot. In other words, the way this is explained is Abraham and Isaac made a deal with Abimelech but the deal wasn't effective. Jacob says, I'm not wasting my time making deals. Does that mean that he transformed him? No. Does that mean he walked away from him? Again, conceptually, yes, but he didn't convince himself that any progress was being made by making a deal. That's the point. He didn't delude himself into thinking, when I make a deal, it's going to be effective. There's no deal that's going to be effective without doing the hard work. So it, and it, it, it doesn't mean that it can't be with Abimelech or it has to be with this guy or that guy or the other. It's the concept of different modalities. The, deal, the covenant with Abimelech represents pushing away, brushing aside the problem, but not dealing with it. Going to harm represents dealing with it. How did he ultimately deal with Abimelech, or did he ever deal with Abimelech? That will have to leave for the simple understanding of the story. But metaphorically, there's two modalities here. There's, there's thinking you dealt with the problem, but you didn't, and then there's actually dealing with the problem. Jacob said, I'm not going to convince myself, I'm not going to delude myself into thinking that there's progress being made when there's not, therefore I'm going to go to the, to the, uh, to the other approach to go into Haran and there do a transformation. So, how does it actually play out in this story, in the narrative? All right, we have to plug into some pieces. It's not all gonna, you know, gonna melt perfectly. It's, it's, it's more of a concept. I hope that makes sense. Sure. Dr. Maxi.
3: So, then are you inferring that, because didn't Jacob come back to Beersheba? Later he, on in the Torah?
0: He does come, he ultimately okay, does come back so Abimelech
3: home. Abimelech is gone by that time, right?
0: I believe so. I don't believe that he's mentioned past that, past this, uh, this so point.
3: Well, at first I was thinking maybe Abimelech was some kind of like centenarian because he seems to be there for multiple generations.
0: Right, right. He's the guy, or it could be like a pharaoh type thing where they all took the name, right? So the king, just the leader took that name and, you know, who knows who it was, but there was Abimelech, this guy, that guy. Again, I'm not. I'm not trying to spin conspiracy theories. Although, no, I'm kidding. Um, but who knows? It could be. But you're right. We don't find that later. But again, the way the uh, you know, I does it have to lie? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm not bothered by the fact that you know. Well, what actually happened in the end with Abimelech? You know, was he ever transformed or not? It, it's more of the concept. It's more of like. It's two different approaches and by the way it's very important to, to emphasize that this is not to discount or or completely um, disqualify the former approach in other words the the approach of, of Abraham and, and Isaac ie the approach of Escafia sometimes you're just not ready to deal with it and transform it and you know what pushing it away is the is the is the is better than indulging in it, right? Put it, pushing it away is better than succumbing to it. So that's a first step. But the point here is, it's just the first step. And the, the second step that we should be looking toward is to actually deal with the problem. There's a wonderful commentary along these lines. And again, how they all fit together, it's, it's not necessarily going to fit together like a glove. That's what I was saying before. But I'll give you another another, another plot line to think about. So the Torah tells us that after Jacob spends time in Haran with Lavan and gets married and has a bunch of kids, so he leaves and he goes back home. On the way, going home, he, he meets his brother, who a few decades prior, about 20 years prior, wanted to kill him, as you recall. And now they finally are meeting up again, and Jacob is scared. He doesn't know how Esau still feels. He doesn't know how Esau you know, what what type of anger he still harbors. He hears that he's coming at him to meet him with a bunch of people, and and, and he's very concerned. He sends him gifts. He prays. He divides his camp for safety, safety, uh, strategically. Ultimately, what happens is they reconcile. But the Torah tells us something very mysterious. The night before they meet, Jacob crosses over the river. You you know, remember this one? They cross over the river, and then Jacob goes back to retrieve some things that he left and he wrestles with a mysterious figure all night until the crack of dawn. And our tradition tells us it was an angel. And what happens at the end of the struggle? What does the angel do? The angel realizes that he can't defeat Jacob. Yeah, what does he do? He?
3: Dislocates his hip.
0: Dislocates his hip. He strikes him in the leg, dislocates his hip, and Jacob walks with a limp. I want to share with you an incredible insight. There's a commentary I forget which one that says why, why did this happen? Why did the angel do this? Because the angel didn't want Jacob running away from the confrontation. The angel didn't want Jacob running away from the confrontation. He ran away from Esau years ago. He ran away from Laban, and now again he was concerned. Maybe Jacob's modality is flight. So he says, that's it. Even if you wanted to run, you can't. You can't run with a dislocated hip. You need some rest. So it's going to happen. The confrontation is going to happen. How does that fit in with this that says that from the beginning, he was trying to encounter evil and transform it? It doesn't exactly fit, but it still represents the notion of dealing with the problem and not just brushing it away. And so again... Whether it's this story or whether it's a story that happens 20 years later, it's the same Nakuda, it's the same thing. Now, which one is correct? Shivim Panim LaTorah. There's 70, 70 ways of understanding Torah. So pick one, pick all. I choose to pick all, all of the above. Everyone has a nuance and they're all true in their own way. But here's the point. There's a way to ignore and brush aside and, 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 and pretend like it's not and tell yourself it's better but it's not, or there's a way to deal with it. And the only way to deal with it is straightforward, head-on, to do the work, to confront what you don't want to confront, and to actually deal with it. With Abimelech, again, getting back to our story, he realized that was not, it was not going to be effective, so he left, and he went to Haran, where he was going to engage head-on with what needed to be engaged in. Karen? Um,
1: two things, or three things, actually. First of all, refresh my memory, just when he, when Jacob wrestles with the angel, was it was it the wrestle with the angel or the climbing up the ladder that um, created a, a an awareness in Jacob where he can't he he there's I just remember having a tour study and it was so revelatory but I can't remember the specifics.
0: But but continue continue we had a, he had a um, a realization that what or what
1: all of a sudden he wore he it was almost like he returned to self where he he. Um, he 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 knew who he was.
0: Yeah, that's he, a core. I, I believe there's an insight about that with um, not the dream, not the ladder. When he left that the ladder, the dream and the ladder, Jacob's ladder is out. The, the narrative that we discussed tonight, when he left his home to get away from you know all that stuff to leave his home to find a wife, he lies down and he has a dream with the ladder. But I believe what you're talking about, if I'm if I'm correct, what you're talking about is. When he encounters the angel of Isa and he fights with him and he wrestles with him and then he sends him the gifts, it was basically a an acknowledgement that I don't want your gifts. Take, he says, take your bircha secha, take your blessing. He says, he doesn't say take my gift He says, or take your gift. He says, take your blessing, which means, according to some commentaries, that he was giving the blessing that he had taken back because he. Got to know what his true path was. His true path was, again, Shivan Torah. So if you're taking the JLI course right now, Secrets of the Bible, don't listen to what I'm about to say. But he was embracing the spiritual path that was always meant to be his and giving back the materialism, giving back the cows and the sheep and the goats and the other things. Kaches take your blessing back. I know my role, you know your role, and that's it. How does it fit with Secrets of the Bible? I told you not to listen. For those that listen and now are wondering, I told you not to listen. I warned you. Fine, if you listened, it's on you, right? Okay, so that's that. Um, but yeah, it, does that does that does that ring familiar at all?
1: No, I mean, I just feel like so much, like all of this is such, you know, so much a part of Jacob's journey. You know, I, the the um, this is just one more element in his journey. Which which if you look in terms of purpose in life. You know there is there's there's this continuous journeying which starts with Abraham when God tells him lech you know return to return to yourself and um, I'm just I'm just kind of curious you know why like I know why Abraham left home and headed in his direction because he was headed out to you know to to educate idol worshippers. it to a, at a place where idol worship was rampant, but, but why Haran? What was it about Haran? Number
0: one, what's interesting and is we skipped a text from the uh, I forget which Hasidic master we I, I skipped through it. It's a text that said that notwithstanding all of the transform all of the accomplishments of Abraham, by the next generation, no one was left. You just mentioned that Abraham was educating idol worshippers. How many stuck around in the times of Isaac? How many followers? How many chsedim of Abraham stuck around for the next generation, and the next generation, the next generation? None. None, because he he didn't make the transformation. Again, again, this is not me saying it. I can pull up the text if you have a book. You can also read it. I'll read. Not, I don't want to pull up the text formally. I'll just read it to you. Isaac Humler. He says, Abraham successfully impacted the world, imparting the message that God is the master of the universe. But this impact was only temporarily. For this faith was only preserved among the members of Abraham's family, but not the world around them. Abraham transformed his family, impacted the world, but didn't transform them. So he maybe influenced them for the moment. Again, not to take away. We have to be very careful that we're not you know, slamming or denigrating or, you know, whatever, in any way, the accomplishments of, of, of the greats of the greats is just putting it in perspective. The way I see it, and, and along the lines of what you're saying, Karen, is there's a bit of um, an evolution and a continuum. Each, each generation builds on the previous. Abraham starts the journey. It picks up with, with Isaac. It gets even stronger with Jacob. And as the generations continue progressively, more and more is added and more and more is deepened to the experience. So by the time we get to Jacob, it shifts from you know, temporary fixes or band-aids right, to, real, to the real hard work. I mean, he goes into Laban's house and he transforms the sheep, literally transforms them into the speckled and the spotted and the ringed. He's making a real impact. Now, does he transform his own father-in-law and uncle into, into a monotheist? Or is, is his father-in-law still serving idols to the point that Rachel has to steal them on her way out? All right. So where's the transformation? Again, it's a concept, and we have to figure out the best way to plug it into the story. But there's got to be a way to plug into the story. So that's the homework. How do we plug into the story? And I'll leave you to do that. But, uh, but, but then could, the point is that it's, the way I see it is, it, it the the story deepens as it goes on. But Haran was
1: not, there's nothing specifically significant about
0: Haran. haran it's called Haran because Haran Afshololam. It's the place of God's wrath. It was a very it was considered to be a very unholy place. So going into that place and creating a transformation. It's not a bad it's not a bad thing. But the question is where's the transformation? where do we see the transformation. Okay, so we have to think creatively and study more Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy to, to realize where in that experience did the transformation happen.
2: Rabbi Solis, yes, real quick. I think it was in celebration of one of the art sites of the Rebbe, and you had that big beautiful um, thing about him. And at one point, a mother comes to the Rebbe in tears about her son, that he's left the fold and he he's just being awful and. It's, can the Rebbe please help, and she's crying, and the boy is sitting there. Maybe like in his early teens or something, you remember that?
0: A hundred percent. the
2: Rebbe asked the boy, do you listen to what your parents say? And he said, no. Do you, no, He said, no. And the Rebbe says, this boy is honest. He's going to be fine.
0: Yes. That's- Ms. Erez Ms. He said, this boy speaks the truth. And this guy tells the story decades later, and he's crying like a baby. He said, when the Rebbe said that I speak the truth, that was it. Saru, continue. Yeah?
2: Isn't that a classic example?
0: Transformation.
2: Yeah.
0: Transformation. You can kick him out of the school. He was kicked out of every yeshiva. Every yeshiva had him, and they said, doesn't fit the system. Doesn't fit. If he changes, whatever. But doesn't fit the system. And the Rebbe was able to to, to transform. It's, uh, it's, thank you for sharing that story. I actually saw it recently, so it's a, a little bit fresh in my memory. Not that I remembered it in the class, but, but yeah. He, he was so proud. He was so proud of his defiance until the Rebbe said, Erzakt Emes. He tells the truth. It's a heavy story. It's a heavy story. There's a way. There's a way to transform. There's a way to do it. There's a way. Takes, it takes, it takes, it, it, it's, it's hard. It's the harder path, but there's a way. Bev? Uh,
1: what are those two words? How do you spell them?
0: I'm going to write them in the chat, if that helps. Um in Hebrew or in English? In I'm, Hebrew? Do you want them in Hebrew or English?
1: Hebrew, so I can see the show
0: range. Uh, it's going to be Aramaic. It's, it's not, I'll write in the Hebrew, but it's a little bit more complicated. I have to pull up a Hebrew keyboard. Um... Okay. Just Tell me. Okay, it's Aleph. The first word is skafia Aleph, Saf, Chaf, Pei, Yud, Aleph? Okay. Probably because it's Aramaic, is skafia. And the
1: other word?
0: It's hapka. Aleph, Saf, Hey, Pei, Chaf, Hey. Okay.
1: And um, I was thinking of two other transformations: is Pinchas and Levi. Pinchas was after he used the sword; he was given the um, the responsibility of bringing peace.
0: Um. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so you're talking about transformation?
1: Yeah. So Pinchas, and then and also Levi. Um. There was.
0: Transformed to be the Levi. Yeah, Levi, who had one of the two parties. It was Shimon and Levi who destroyed Shechem, destroyed the city, and they become the uh, the bearers of the torch of peace and love. Correct transformation. It's a harder path, but that's it. By the way, I wrote it's, it's, it 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 and it in the. Okay, see it in the chat in English. <laughs> Pleasure. All right, it's great to see everybody.
1: I have a joke, Ari. I'll tell it to you privately.
0: All right. Awesome. Good. I can't wait.
2: It's about it's
0: about Charona. All right. All right. We'll we'll talk offline. All right, folks. It's great to see you all. It is wonderful. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and um, and we'll see you all. Take care, Lila Tove. Pleasure. Have a good night.
2: Thanks.